Good morning. My name's Tony, and I am the lead pastor here. If you're visiting, uh, we hope that you've enjoyed worshiping with us. Doesn't everything look so pretty in the church? And a group of us showed up yesterday to decorate and did a great job. And uh, looks like about half of you ate too much turkey and got sick, and you're watching from home today. So we want to say hello, and we're glad that you're online with us today and uh, that you are joining us via the internet. That's always a great thing to have when you can't be here. I know a lot of people uh, join in every week for that. Um, I'm going to start a new series this week, as Brandon mentioned to you, a four-week series on uh, Christmas, Christmas at the movies. Um, And so, you know, I I know it's that time of year, and some, you know, you've been dying and waiting. Uh, You start listening to Christmas music, like, um, you know, and somewhere in there, but it's okay to say now because today is the first day of Advent. Merry Christmas. And ball humbug back at you. <laughs> Merry Christmas. This is the season. I love that we don't just celebrate. You know, I always wondered, I, I'm sorry, if, if I'm offending you, I, yeah, you need offended. But uh, people go out and get their tree like Christmas Eve and put it up. Have you ever heard of anybody doing, anybody here do that? Well, you're from Germany. I know they did that in Germany. But on Christmas Eve, you go out and you cut the tree down. And, I, and my question is, Why? Why do you wait till the night before Christmas, right? Man, my kids this year started bugging me about November 3rd uh, to start putting stuff up. We put a few things up, but we put the Christmas tree up the day after Thanksgiving. So it's okay to say Merry Christmas, all right? Well, let me start by saying this today as we begin uh, our series with message number one. Um, I'm somewhat of a superhero, Yes, I just said that. I am a superhero. It's true. I'm a superhero. I even wore my shirt for it today. I told Brandon, I said, a couple of my favorite things about Christmas is Santa Claus, and I do like the journey, don't stop believing, you know. Uh, I thought I would get festive and put a red shirt on, and it's like the only red shirt I own. But anyway, I wanted to just say that I'm a superhero. My shirt's red, not my cape, all right? So I'm a superhero because, and I know I look average or maybe a little below average, but I'm a superhero because I have superpowers. And you're all dying to know what those are, but we never reveal our superpowers. No, I'm going to reveal my superpower this way. I have this incredible ability to become invisible. I I am. I'm not going to try it right now. I don't feel like it. You know, I just... I just don't. And you can stop laughing because it's true. I have this super ability to become completely unseen. I discovered the ability when I was in grade school. I wasn't very outgoing. I'm an introvert. I didn't make friends easily. I wasn't the most... uh, I didn't, just, I didn't like being in groups and crowds or whatever, and we moved a lot when I was a child, so I was never really on the, in, you know, the forever friend group who had grown up since you know, t- toddler school. And so I was always moving, always in a different school, always the new kid, being an introvert, not your friend. I learned in grade school I could be in the middle of 
the lunchroom, I could be walking down the hall, I could be sitting in a classroom, and no one would notice I was there. And so I learned this superhero power as a child that I could become invisible. I could be present but not seen. I could walk up to a small group of kids who were talking and laughing and joking and I would stand there waiting for someone to acknowledge me and no one would acknowledge me. I soon quickly learned I must be invisible. I could sit at a lunchroom table and say, hey, how's everybody going? And sit down and nobody noticed me. Kind of like Superman when he was a boy. Remember the story of Superman and the movie Superman? How when he was a boy and he was late for the school bus and the school bus took off down the road and he started running and wasn't quick that he realized he was no longer running behind the school bus, but he just like pew, shot off. And so as a child, he learned he had this superhero strength, right? That's the way it was for me and being the invisible man or boy. My abilities didn't go away. As I got older, through high school, through college, in my own house, with my family, at parties, in large groups, having superpowers isn't always wonderful. Sometimes it's nice to be invisible and to use them and not be seen. But then there are times when it's frustrating. I figured I just had to live with it, right? I'm thinking about getting a cape, actually. But I didn't think anybody, my wife definitely won't let me wear a cape. But I don't think I can pull that one off, right? I'd like to think that I'm unique in my superpowers. Superheroes like to think they're the center of the world. But I know in this room and in the size of group of people this size, that some of you or maybe a lot of you feel unseen, unnoticed. Nobody knows you're even there. The truth is, we all just want someone to notice us in the flesh, to see us, to know us, to embrace us. We all have this deep desire born inside of us, to be connected, to be seen, to be noticed, to be loved, to be embraced, to be in a relationship that matters and has meaning. So today we're talking about the miracle on 34th Street. Now there were two very popular ones put out. The most popular is the old one, the 1947 version that you see on your left. Miracle on 34th Street. You recognize the little girl Susan and Chris Kringle who was Santa Claus. The one on the right was remade in 1994. It's a little different, but the same story. And maybe you've seen one of these. Which one did you watch, Brandon? The 1947 one, the best one. The other one's pretty good. But the story, if you've not seen it, basically goes like this. The real Santa Claus, Chris Kringle, drops into the department store there in New York City. And he ends up getting a job playing, of all else, Santa Claus. He inspires belief as he connects and he moves through the department store and he makes new friends and they all begin to believe that there's something different about this guy. 
the city and the world would eventually see the real Santa Claus. He even incites a court case where the judge has to rule in front of the people and the whole world whether Santa Claus really exists or not. Don't stop believing, baby, right? You might think that Santa Claus or Kris Kringle in the movie gets his power from some magic. And honestly, during the movie, it's a movie, right? You kind of wait for the magic to happen. You kind of wait for him just to kind of throw some pixie dust or to snap his fingers and everybody just gets everything they want. And when you watch the movie, you think, okay, I'm really starting to believe this guy's really Santa Claus, and they do a really good job at that. But his, but his being, his person, is not based on his magical powers. The entire movie plot has nothing to do with magic or the idea of the magical Santa Claus that we have in mind. Instead, the movie is simply based on this man's interaction with adults and children and how he begins to change their hearts and change their beliefs, not through magic, but simply from being present. He inspires change and belief and faith Not because he's magical, but because he embraced people where they were. He loved them. Even little Susan, the daughter of the store manager, who's this little girl who's so skeptical, so grown up, so hard-hearted, that as the movie progresses, her heart is melted away, and she too begins to believe. Not because she sees magic or that she gets what she wants, but because she sees how this man embraces others. It's simple, the story, but if you don't look past the idea of the magical Santa Claus to see how he touched and laughed and cried and embraced and empathized with people, You miss the real magic on Miracle on 34th Street. You miss the miracle on 34th Street. I got a couple of clips if you don't believe me, but here's one interaction from the 1947 with a little Dutch girl to show you what I'm talking about. Santa Claus. Bye. Merry Christmas. Well, young lady, what's your name? I'm sorry she doesn't speak English. She's Dutch. She just came over. She's been living in an orphan's home in Rotterdam ever since. Well, we've adopted her. I told her you wouldn't be able to speak to her. But when she saw you in the parade yesterday, she said you were Santa Claus, as she calls you. And you could talk to her. Well, I didn't know what to do. Hello. Ik ben blij dat je gekomen bent. Oh, Ben Santa Claus. Yes, I guess. Ik wist het wel. Ik was zeker dat u het zou begrijpen. Natuurlijk. Sigma, what you so will in heaven, Ben Sinterklaas. Niks. Ik help van alles. Ik wil alleen maar bij deze lieve dame zijn. <laughs> will you want to go to me singing? 
Sinterklaas kapoentje, geef wat in mijn schoentje, geef wat in mijn laarsje. Dank u Sinterklaasje, Sinterklaas kapoentje, geef wat in mijn schoentje, geef wat in mijn laarsje. Dank u Sinterklaasje. Now do you understand? Yes, I see what you mean, Mother. Good. But when he spoke Dutch to that girl, he was so... Susan, I speak French, but that doesn't make me Joan of Arc. <laughs> I got one more clip from the newer one that kind of drives home this point that don't look for the miracle to be in the magic. The miracle was in his ability to simply be present and with people who otherwise might not be seen. Watch this. Hello, little one. How are you? Uh, Come. Well. Uh, she's deaf. You don't have to talk to her. She just wanted to see you. Thank you. <laughs> you are a very beautiful young lady. <laughs> What's your Beautiful name. <laughs> now I tell you what, do you know Jingle Bells? Yeah. Oh, bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride on a one horse open sleigh. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Darling, what would you like for Christmas? A doll and a bear when you shall have them. Sammy, I wish you a merry Christmas. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Don't miss the true miracle on 34th Street. The miracle is not about a magical Santa who can wave his hand and give everybody what they want. The miracle happened as his, this man, Chris Kringle, was simply with them. He became more than just a story, but a real person, in the flesh person. He was with them during a time of year when so many people, especially young people, go unnoticed. The busyness and the craziness of the season, we tend to not see those around us. But he was present, embracing, loving, listening, encouraging. John's gospel account of the Christmas story is unique. We have Luke's story, which is the one that I would say is probably the most read. When we read the Christmas story, we always open up to the book of Luke. And we read that story. The book of Matthew, the other gospel, has an account of the story of Christmas, but it's different than Luke's. Luke was the historian. He wanted all the details. It had angels. It had shepherds. It had all that good stuff. Mark 
doesn't have a Christmas story in it at all. Luke has a Christmas story, or John has a Christmas story, but it's unique. There are no angels, there are no shepherds, there are no wise men, there is no Joseph or Mary, there's no Bethlehem, there is no Pontius or, or there is no Pilate given a decree that everybody must go out uh, and be into their own hometown and be counted. There's none of that. John's story is unique. John focuses on what we call the incarnation. In John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, He, God, the Word, made His dwelling among us. Emmanuel, God with us. And it says also in verse 9 that He came as the true light that gives light to everyone. John's story of the Christmas miracle is different. There's not a lot of story to it, but simply truth about the real Jesus who he was, what he did, and how he came to our existence. So I'm going to read for you this morning, John chapter 1, verse 1 through 13. I just want to read it for you to give you an idea of what John is saying. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, the Word already existed. He has been forever and ever. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him. And nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created. And His life brought life to everyone. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness can never extinguish it. God sent a man... John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, But the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. He's speaking of the Jews there. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become, now listen, children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. Just like Chris Kringle burst into the lives of those people in that department store, Jesus bursts onto the scene of human history. He bursts into the world, the one who is life himself. He came to this world to give life. Not only life, but also light. He came to reveal the heart of God. He came to reveal the purpose of God. He came to reveal the love of God. He came to reveal the truth of God and the grace of God. 
Jesus bursts onto the history pages as the Son of God, God and man. It says, as light shines in the darkness. John uses this present tense verb here. For the first time, he's saying, for the first time in all of history, Jesus brings the complete and utter revelation of God that God loves you. This is why he's here. This is why he bursts into the history pages, onto the scene. All of us, every one of us, is lost and in darkness without the the light of God, the truth of God. Every single one of us is lost and blind to the truth, disconnected from a relationship with God and from the knowledge of God. We may understand of a God and know God, but we don't truly know Him until we know Jesus. Jesus changed all of that when He simply willed it that God, the Spirit of God, God in the presence and the essence of God became flesh. We like to say God put on skin and muscles and ligaments and organs and He breathed like you and me. We call this the incarnation. Look at verse 14 with me. So John goes on, he says, So, all of verse 1 through 13, So, the Word became flesh. Flesh. I can't wrap my mind around that. As a matter of fact, this is the one sticking point for most people. How can God become flesh? That would mean God would have to suffer. Which, for many, is an impossibility. How can God suffer? He's God. That means God would have to struggle with desires and temptations like you and me, we do that because we're flesh. Because we're human. God did that. God became flesh. God, and I shared with the worship team today, in theology, there's a guy named Ignatius who wrote this idea, and it's almost as though all of theology starts with this statement. Get this. God became what we are, so that we might become who He is. Think about that for a moment. Just let that sink in. God becomes what we are, so that we might become what He is. And you might be thinking to yourself, wait a minute, I can become God? No, but you can become like Him. That is the point of Christianity, to be more and more like Jesus. Jesus became what we are, flesh and blood, suffering, struggling, desires, temptations, all of that. Lived a perfect life so that we might become what He is. 
What does the incarnation mean for us? It means a couple of things. First, it means this. God says we're worth it. When you are unseen and alone and you feel as though your life has no value or purpose or meaning, when you have this feeling that nobody cares or that you feel so disconnected in life that you feel all alone in life, the incarnation should scream at you this, that for God to put on flesh means that you are worth it. God reaffirms this fundamental goodness of creation idea. That back in Genesis, when God looked at creation, he said, oh, this is good, including you. And sin messed that all up. And sin destroyed all of that. And sin breaks our lives apart and our relationships apart. And we don't love God as we should and we don't love one another as we should. But God looked into all of that and he said, I can redeem that. I can make that right again. And the incarnation says we are worth it. That there's this fundamental idea that their goodness of creation is still there and God simply wants to redeem it. God looks and He says about creation, He said, it's good and I'm coming to redeem it. The second thing that the incarnation means for me, first, I'm worth it. Second is, God will do anything to show His love for me. It affirms God's desire to redeem me and to redeem His creation. It means that I'm not a lost cause. It means we're not too far gone. It means I've not gone so far from God that God can't bring me back. It means that God's not forgotten me or rejected me or condemned me. Jesus says, I have not come into the world to condemn it, but I have come to set you free. I have come to save you, to save you, not condemn you. Jesus says to all of us, I see you, I know you, and I want to know you more. This should inspire us to believe. It should inspire us to give Jesus a chance in my life. Just like they began to believe in Kris Kringle in the movie because he made people feel like they were worth it and that he would do anything to connect with them. Jesus comes to us. The second part of that verse says this. So he, the Word became flesh, but he also says, and made his home among us. Literally, it means he pitched his tent with us right where we live. The good, the bad, the beautiful, the ugly, you name it. Jesus pitched his tent in the middle of all of it. John takes us back here to the Exodus. Because in a few moments, he's going to mention Moses. And he's going to mention the law of Moses. And so John's doing this comparison between Moses and Jesus and the law and grace. And he's doing this comparison in this text. And John literally takes us back to Exodus. When Moses leads the people through the Red Sea, God needed a place to live amongst his people. The presence of God had not come into man yet. 
And so God had to have a presence in the middle of his people. And so God told them to pitch a tent. And in that tent, there would have been two rooms. One room would have been on this side of the curtain. The other room would have been on that side of the curtain. On this side of the curtain, the priest would do their, their, their thing. On the other side of the curtain was what we called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies would have been the Ark of the Covenant. And in that Ark would have been Aaron's staff. And in that Ark would have been the Tablets of the Covenant. The Ten Commandments. And that was the Holy of Holies. And only one person could go in there. And if you went in there wrong and you weren't prepared and you weren't right, you could fall dead. Matter of fact, they even tied a rope around the priest's ankle. You know why they did that, right? Because if you went into the presence of God unworthy, look out. And so he gives us this idea. And so here's, I'm going to read for you out of Hebrews, just what this looks like. The first covenant, the Hebrews writer in the New Testament writes this. The first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. There were two rooms in the tabernacle. In the first room was a lampstand, a table, the sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the holy place. Then there was a, a curtain, and behind the curtain was the second room called the, holy, the most holy place. In that room were a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered with gold on all sides. Inside the Ark, I thought Indiana Jones found that. Maybe not. But uh, inside the Ark was a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves, and the stone tablets of the covenant, which was the stones that Moses came off of Mount Sinai with. Above the ark were the cherubim of the divine glory, whose wings stretched over the ark's cover, the place of atonement. But we cannot explain these things in detail now. So he's going to move on. When these things were in all in place, the priests regularly entered the first room as they performed their religious duties. But on the high priest, only the high priest, ever entered the most holy place, and only once a year. So there's this curtain that separated the people from God's presence. And the priest would go in and advocate for the people in the presence of God. And he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. In other words, they were ignorant of the law and what sin was and what sin was not. And it was a just-in-case sacrifice. I don't know what I did, but I'm sure I did something wrong, so offer an atonement for it. Listen, but these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. This is an illustration pointing to the present time. Now Jesus is here. For the gifts and sacrifices that the priest offered are not able to cleanse the conscience of the people who bring them. The old covenant failed to do one very important thing. Clear and cleanse the conscience of the people. 
It could cover their sins and God would cover them with grace, but it didn't actually cleanse them. Next verse. Was that it? That's it. I said through verse 10, didn't I? And so, now Jesus comes on the scene. John uses the idea of a tabernacle and pitching of the tent to show us that God's presence is no longer going to be behind a curtain where one person could go in and meet with God and offer sin sacrifices for the rest of the people. But now, the Word of God, God Himself in the flesh has come and He has pitched His tent. (laughs) We don't go to the tabernacle for the forgiveness and the washing of sins now. We go to Jesus. The tent has been pitched. (laughs) He's here. He is present. And He is real. Later on, he's going to mention Moses and the law. John is associating this event in history with the Exodus. The Word becoming flesh and making His dwelling among us as the fulfillment of the second Exodus. You say the second Exodus. Wow, Pastor, you're talking in. God wants to cleanse us of our sin. The old covenant failed to cleanse us completely. Jesus comes so that we might go to him for cleansing. The presence of God is with us in the person of Jesus. So now up till this point, the glorious presence of God, as I mentioned, operated out of a temporary tent. Now the presence of God is now operating out of the person of Jesus. And when Jesus ascended and went back to heaven after his death and resurrection, he then sent his Holy Spirit to come and be in us as the ultimate presence. But don't forget, this is the Spirit of Jesus that lives in us and moves in us and around us and helps us in our daily life. Verse 14, let's go on. Finish up verse 14. Oops. Keep going. Oh, I'm going to read that. Go back. I'm going to read that. Huh? Okay. You're right. I skipped over it. I'm moving on. I've made my point. Jesus, or Jesus. What are you in? Hebrews? Nope. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Man, I put more in there. I think I just really, really like this. You know what? Go back. I'm going to read it. I'm in charge here. Sort of. This is good. I was only going to read 1 through 10, but this is good. Go back again. Keep going. To verse 11. There. So we got this old covenant. And Jesus comes and... He brings a new covenant. And look what the Hebrew writer says. So Christ has now become the high priest. I no longer need some guy to go in. Christ is my high priest. I go to Jesus over all good things that that have come. He has entered the greater, more perfect tabernacle of heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of the new created world. Next verse. 
with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves that the high priest offered. He entered the most holy place once for all and secured our redemption forever. There's that redemption. God is redeeming us. He's setting all things as they should be. Next, under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify your consciences from sinful deeds so that you can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. And that's it, right? What a great, great thing the incarnation means to us. That Jesus would come. Verse 14. Next verse 14. Back to the book of John. He was full of grace and truth. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Grace is God's unmerited favor toward you. Jesus, being the visible image of the invisible God, in the flesh, God, living image of God, who gives grace to us. And He says He's the grace and truth. The Hebrews use this word as firmness and stability and steadfastness, trustworthiness. The Greeks, they use the word to speak of a meaning of reality. Jesus comes full of grace and a lot of reality to show us what is true, to teach us what is true. John verse 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 16 from his abundance, we have received one gracious blessing after another. Some of your texts or your Bibles that you have say, out of his fullness, we have received grace in place of grace already given. In the original language, the fullness refers back to his full of grace and truth. He is full of it. He is full of grace. He is full of truth. It literally means what he's saying here is that Jesus, in grace and truth, we receive grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. John is trying to show us a picture of God who doesn't judge and condemn and all that, but through Jesus and the incarnation, he is showing us a God who is full of grace, full of truth, who just over and over and over pours out onto us. It never stops. Perpetually, inexhaustibly, it is bottomless. Our salvation is not something that we can earn or buy. The salvation from God that we find in Jesus so overwhelms us with grace that it exhausts sin in our life. When we in turn respond to His grace in a positive manner and submit ourselves to this Jesus, this grace that He pours on to us, it's like a waterfall. Have you ever been under a waterfall and tried to open your eyes or tried to breathe? You can't. 
The water pouring down on you just overwhelms you. This is the word picture that John is using. This over and over like a waterfall, this grace just keeps pounding into us. And when we look up and we respond and just give into it, we're cleansed. We're washed away. The sin is washed away from our hearts. John gives us this is all part of the incarnation. This is all part of who Jesus is. One commentator that I read said this, the salvation brought by the word thus is defined in terms of inexhaustible grace. You can never, never get away from it. So why not just give into it? John chapter 1, verse 17, he goes on, For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. Moses gives us the law, and the law doesn't save us. It doesn't make us good. As a matter of fact, Paul would later say in Romans, all the law does is make us sinners. The law is good in that God gave it. It is who God is. And you can sum up the whole law to this, love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And we break that. We had people who tried to be Christians by keeping the law and not pour, allowing this, un, this inexhaustible grace to pour over us like Jesus does. They try to keep it by keeping rules and regulations, and they think that makes them good and saves them. And Paul says, fine, if that's the way you want to live, then... I warn you, if you break one law, you broke all of them. If you break one law, you have broke all of them. And that's the problem with that. Moses brought that, and the Israelites couldn't keep it. It was an old system that didn't work. It didn't cleanse them of their conscience. Jesus comes with grace and truth. Go, yep, he comes with grace and with truth. And we, don't, we no longer try to have a relationship with God through keeping the law. We try to have a relationship. We have a relationship with God by keeping in relationship with Jesus. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart, he has revealed God to us. And so, just like Chris Kringle, who bursts onto the scene at the store, and people's lives are changed. People begin to believe. People begin to change their thought process of who this guy was simply because he was present. He, he showed up. He sat with them. He cried with them. He hugged them. He laughed with them. He embraced them. Now, now picture this. This is who our God is. I told the worship team this morning as we were talking about incarnation. You know, us Christians, if, if you're not a believer here today, I'm glad you're here. I'm going to say something to Christians and they just need to listen. Sometimes we do really, really good at the spiritual world. And we are. We're guilty of this. We're good at that. But we don't do so well with the physical world. And that is exactly what Jesus stepped into. The physical. The 
hurts and the suffering and those who suffer with disease and those who suffer with mental illness and those who suffer from being alone and struggle, those who suffer from the results of sin in their life, those who are entrapped by sin and addictions and all kinds of things, that is what Jesus stepped into. And it was His incarnational ministry. It was His hands-on approach. It was His embracing people that so many people began to believe. And that belief turned to faith. And that faith turned to salvation. And that salvation began to transform their life. The incarnation, this glorious message of Christmas, is this. God has been working behind the scenes in ways that you would never expect. The incarnation tells us that God cares. It affirms that we are worthy, that we are valuable, that we are redeemable, that God would put skin on to tell us otherwise. John also reminds us that this season is not just a celebration of Christ's coming, but an opportunity for the world to believe. It's an opportunity, Christians, for us to be incarnational in our workplace. It's an opportunity for us to be incarnational in our homes, in our families, on the road, in the stores, wherever we go. It's an opportunity for us to embrace the world so that they might believe in a God who loves and cares for them. Jesus came and offered a new means of relating to God, one determined by faith that we could not muster up on our own, but one that is instead by grace, even though we don't deserve it. Like Chris Kringle said in his defense at his trial, his inability to prove himself. He said, I can't prove myself. And he said this, quote, if you can't accept anything on faith, then you are doomed for a life dominated by doubt. In the midst of a broken world dominated by doubt, Jesus came in the flesh to inspire people to believe, to be washed clean of their sin, and to be in relationship with God. One of my favorite, favorite illustrations about the Incarnation came from a, uh, an author named Philip Yancey. He was trying to explain in a book that I read about the Incarnation. And he said this, he said, imagine that you decide you're going to get a fish tank. Has anybody here ever had a fish tank? Has anybody here ever just got caught up in building a world for that little fish in that fish tank? Yeah, me too. My wife's like, just throw some rocks in there and let the fish swim around, right? I'm like, no, they got to have one of these. They got to have some trees. And, you know, you get the rock and you put it in the tank and, and then you get these trees and you move them. No, that don't look good there. Let's put them over here. Oh, and then they could swim this way. And you're sitting there, you know, and you're building this world for them. And then comes time for the water, right? And then you pour all the water in. You get it just right. You put all these chemicals in it. You know, and you make this environment, you create this environment for this fish that you just know the fish is going to love it. You know, and then three days later, you're flushing the fish because you forgot to, you know, 
I know that's sad. If there's any little kids here, they're crying right now. But anyway, because you've, you've had to flush a fish, I know. No, seriously, you build this environment and you put this fish in there. And the fish starts swimming around and you turn the light off and you leave. A couple hours later, you come in, you want to see your fish. Are they liking their environment? You turn the light on, you come in there and you tap on the window and that fish just looks like scared to death and it runs and it hides in this little thing that you've got and you're like, where's the fish? You look, see if it's floating, did it jump off the back, you know, and that fish ran from you. And you're like, why why would that fish be afraid of me? I built this environment. I created this environment. I, I created this world for them, and I want to have a relationship with them, but they're scared. Every Then you turn the light off. You say, well, maybe they're just not used to the environment. So you leave. You come back, and you do this over and over again. And every time you come up there and you tap on there, you, you can only imagine what the fish is seeing through the thing. You know? And you're tapping on this thing, and you're like, hi, fish. You know, And that fish just runs and hides, scared to death of you. Because you're bigger than life. They don't understand you. They're scared of you. They think you're going to do something. They think you're going to squash them. Sounds a little bit like our idea of God. He creates this environment. Gives us this beautiful world to live in. Gives us so much. And we're afraid of Him. For whatever reason, maybe it's our sin. Maybe it's just simply we don't know if we can relate. Maybe you don't even know for sure if he exists. But all you know is the idea of God is scary. How am I, the owner of this fish, going to communicate to this fish, it's okay. I'm not going to hurt you. I love you, fish. I I love everything about you. I created this world. How am I going to do that? And it dawns on you, you'd have to become a fish. That is what God did in the person of Jesus Christ. He became one of us in the flesh. Would you stand with me this morning as we pray? Here's how I want to do this this morning, opening up our Advent season, I just want you to repeat after me. Everybody pray this prayer together in unison as a, as a family of God to just renew our commitment to Jesus this season. Just repeat after me. Jesus, I admit that I have doubts. I've thought to myself, is there a God? Does He know who I am? Does He care about my life? It's hard to wrap my mind around incarnation. It's hard to understand, God, how You would put on flesh. Jesus, You're coming in the flesh, embracing all people, loving all people, Sacrificing for all people inspires me to believe. I believe in you. Open my heart and mind this Christmas season to see you in new ways. Amen.
Amen. You may be seated. God bless you.